Um, so today we're going back into uh, thinking about living together and uh, in just the series that we're looking at just now, what does it mean to be church? What does it mean to live together in unity? And uh, one of our key passages is in uh, John chapter 17. It says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And, uh, you know, in one sense, it's an unanswered prayer of Jesus. Imagine Jesus praying a prayer that's not answered. Can you imagine that? It's not answered, not fully. It's being answered, and there's a responsibility upon each one of us to be the answer to that prayer, that we learn what it is to be one, that we learn what it is to live in unity and uh, in harmony with one another. And uh, I think the church has an opportunity to demonstrate to the world what it's like to live in unity but still be different, okay? I encourage you to take a look around, uh, maybe last week or a couple of weeks ago, and look. Everybody's different. We look physically different. Uh, we think different. Our personalities are different. We're all different. We're all unique. But we can still be united in heart and in purpose. And uh, yeah, just uh, the last couple of sessions looking at this, we've thought about Jesus' command to love one another. It's a command which Jesus gave to the disciples as they were gathered in the upper room. They had just taken bread and wine that Jesus had prayed these prayers. Uh, the things which Paul talks about are from that. Uh, and then Judas left the room we thought about. And uh, it's after Judas left that Jesus said to them, this is my command, a new command I'm giving you, love one another. And then he begins to uh, pray. Uh, in John chapter 17, he prays for the disciples and then he prays for us incredible. 2,000 years ago, Jesus saw you and prayed for you. That's an incredible thing. He saw the church, He saw us, and He prayed for us. And uh, this, was, this, is, this is essentially what we're, we're saying this morning, is that, is that Jesus uh, came uh, and died that we might be united, that we might be a people. And, you know, I, I want to talk today about uh, the first kind of level of unity that I was talking about, and it's individual uh, unity. So, there are uh, different levels of unity, and the first one is individual unity. Now, you might think, how is it possible, if it's individual, to be divided? Yeah? We're talking about you and I. How can we be divided in ourselves? Well, the reality is that we can be divided in ourselves. And I want to just spend a little bit of time exploring unity within ourselves. You know, I heard uh, Tommy Tenney speak on unity, and he talked about five different levels of unity. And it really impacted me because I'd never thought about unity on different levels before. Uh, and it kind of inspired me to, to share this in the church. And by the way, he did say, take all my notes, take everything, just use it, make sure you preach it in the church. So uh, I'm giving Tommy Tenney credit for the fact that there's five different levels that he kind of pointed out to me. Um, and whenever people start to put things like that, my engineering brain kicks in because I like to take things to bits to know how they work, but I also like to put them back together again. <laughs> so uh, I was always doing that as a, as a child, just taking things to bits and putting them back together again. And so today I want to think about what it means to have uh, unity within ourselves. What does it mean to be united? We probably all know 
uh, people in church. I've been in church all my life, and we know people who one day can be on fire for God, and, you know, they are saints and, and making me feel kind of like really, really small, but then the next day, they can be backslidden and running away from God and running away from all that God uh, wants to do. And, uh, you know, the, the people who were in awe of one day were helping and picking up the next day. There's that kind of oscillation between being on the mountain and being in the valley. Okay, let's, let's understand that there, we have mountaintop experiences, yeah? Do you get what I'm saying with that? For me, a couple of weeks ago at conference, there was some real mountaintop experiences in worship, just being in God's presence and loving it. And then, and then sometimes we come to Monday morning, and we've got to put that into practice in the difficulties of life, and that can be a challenge. But really, what I'm encouraging us to do is to think about being the same person on Sunday as we are on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, throughout the week, being the same person as we turn up to church every week, but being changed to become more like Jesus as we go along. Listen to what Colossians says. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and in the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. People who have these wonderful revelations of who God is, Colossians 2, 18, 19, for those who are turning their Bibles, just so you know where we are. We can have all these great and wonderful revelations of who God is, and then go into such detail, such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, who is Jesus, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. God has placed us together in a body. It's called the church. And uh, this, you would read this analogy in Scripture. God has placed us in a body, the church. And if one part of the body isn't working, it starts to affect the others. You'll know that just in your own bodies. Uh, I woke up this morning with a headache. When I've got a headache, it starts to affect other things. When one part of the body isn't working right, it affects other parts of the body. Therefore, it's important that we understand what it's like to be in unity within ourselves, to be at peace within ourselves. And this morning, I'm going to cover this first level of unity, but there are five different levels of unity, okay? Let me see your hand. I want, I want you to do this so that you remember, like this, okay? Like this, because you're going to use your other finger to point, okay? I've got my, my right hand finger up, okay? So, the first level of unity is individual unity, okay? The unity that we're going to talk about today. The second level of unity is family unity, who we are in our family. The third level is community unity, unity in the community, who we are with our friends, with our neighbors, those who are around about us. And then the fourth level is unity in the church, who we are together as a people and whether or not we're united in church. And then the fifth level is unity across the churches. And we're going to think about those five different levels of unity today, thinking first about individual unity. What causes us to be disunited? And really, this is a big, complicated subject, okay? The psychologists in the room, Stephen, 
we'll be able to say after today, by the way, there's so much more to that subject than you covered. Yes, totally, okay? Because we are so unique, we're so different. Even when we come to a message like this, we'll just kind of hear different things because we're hearing it from our own perspective. But I want to think about a few things, just three things, the impact on how our unity within ourselves will impact unity around us as well. We need to get the first level of unity right. If we are not comfortable within ourselves, if we're not united here, then that will affect every other area of unity, okay? If I've got a problem and I'm not united within myself, that's going to spill over into my family. It's going to spill over into my friends, my neighbors. It's going to eventually spill over into church and we might fall out with each other. Hopefully not but it can spill out into wider church community where one church falls out with another church and all of these things go on. But that's not God's plan. That's not what God is after. And so let's think about, let's think about pride to start off with. It's one of those things, and uh, uh, C.S. Lewis said this in uh, his book, Mere Christianity. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Interesting, isn't it? I like to take pride in my work and the things that I do, whether it's in the house or in church or anywhere else in life. I like to have a sense of pride about what I do. That's a healthy thing. That's a good thing. We want to do our best for God. We want to use the gifts that God has put within us. But when that becomes about comparing myself against other people, then it becomes unhealthy, especially when I'm kind of looking down on other people and thinking, I'm glad I'm not down there with that person, as we'll come to that in a second. But I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. I was thinking about today's message and uh, Friday night, I went out to cut the grass, and uh, here's a picture of my grass after being cut, okay? And uh, this lawnmower was gifted to me by a certain person in the church, Mr. Cook. Thank you very much. And uh, one of the things I love about it is it, it allows me to put the stripes on the grass, right? <laughs> nice straight lines. Some of us like straight lines, okay? Some of us don't like all the messy, chaosy type stuff. So I like to get my grass looking nice. It gives me a lot of pleasure, a sense of satisfaction when uh, even later on in the night, I'll, I'll open my blinds and I'll look out the window. And is, does that sound really sad? Sorry. <laughs> Martin does it too. Brilliant. I'm, I'm not, yay, well done. We've got another one. Yes. Join the club. Oh, the club's getting bigger. MDLs. I love the stripes in the grass. You know, at night time, it's the street lights that are on and you look out and you can still see the lines and you're like, oh, oh I did a good job. <laughs> love it. But then, then I have a next door neighbor called Willie and he likes to get the stripes in his grass as well. Now, look at the stripes in Willie's grass. <sighs> they are seriously good stripes, Okay. He's got a slightly wider blade than his lawnmower than I have. Mine is 14 inches, his is 17 inches, okay? And uh, it just, it's just that wee bit heavier, so he gets those lovely 
edges on the lines. And I'm like, oh, Lily. I remember when we, when we were looking at buying that house, um, we, we, we pitched up. It used to be Peter Cochran's house. Um, I'd more or less agreed to buy it before Mary had even seen it. But that's another story. And I remember arriving to look at uh, the house and I seen Willie's grass and I was like, I like that. I really like that. But here's the point, right? Here's what I'm trying to say. If I'm so jealous of his grass that I look at my own and go, oh, it's not that good. It could be better. Well, there's something in me wants to make it better, okay? I'm going to practice getting the lines even you know, you know that bit where you've got to get the lawnmower right on the edge, but, but not actually miss bits of grass, so you leave wee bits sticking up? You know what I mean? Right, Robert, you know what I mean, okay? <laughs> it's getting it just right, and, and I want to get it just right. I want to get it perfect. The, the, the grass gets fed, it gets watered, the seed goes down, the, the patches are, are filled out after scarifying it and getting all the moss out, trying to make it healthy. And, and I want to do as good a job as I can. But the the moment I start comparing myself to somebody else, I begin to lose pleasure in what I'm doing. Okay? I could look at Kenny's grass across the street. He's got a rotary mower, okay? Which isn't quite as good as the cylinder mower for getting the lines, but he likes to get the lines as well. And I could go, oh, Kenny's grass isn't as good as mine. <laughs> yeah? But then I'd go, oh, but my grass isn't as good as Willie's. Think about how it pans out in the church. Oh, I wish I was able to play the piano like Steve. He's so gifted. Yeah? Or whatever it might be. And, and we can lose that sense of satisfaction within ourselves because we're so uh, caught up in comparing ourselves to other people. But when we begin to do that, something unhealthy happens within us. Pride gets in the way. Comparison gets in the way. And it's an unhealthy thing. And Jesus drew attention to this whole type of attitude about comparing uh, one to the other. And he shared uh, a story uh, about two people. We read about it in Luke chapter 18, verses 10 through to 14, and I'm going to read it. And it's the story of the, Pha the Pharisee and the publican. And this is what Jesus said. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Wow. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Good to fast twice a week. Good to give a tenth of all you get, but not to make yourself look good at somebody else's expense. Verse 13, but the tax collector stood at, uh, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's so easy to fall into this trap, especially when we've been Christians for a long time, we've been in church for a long time, we know how it all works. I'm still figuring out how it works, by the way. And it's so easy to look down on other people, and when we do that, we become disconnected from the person whom God has created us to be. 
God has not told us to look down on other people. He's asked us, as Jesus did, to come down to other people's level and take them by the hand and say, come here, I'll show you this. That's what Jesus did. That's what the incarnation is all about. Jesus took on a human form. He took on a human body and came to the earth in order to relate to us His creation. So, there's nothing that He doesn't know about. I was reading a book. I mentioned it last week. It's called, uh, let me just see, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by a man called Timothy Keller, and I can recommend reading it. And there's a chapter called The Nature, The Natural Condition of the Human Ego, and it really draws out some truths that Paul is trying to teach the church in Corinth who are arguing about people. And the reading is from 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 4 to 7. And I'm not going to read all that today. I'll just mention one verse in a minute or two. But it's all about taking pride in one person over the other. You know how Paul in Corinthians talks about people who are saying, I am I'm of Paul, and oh, well, I, I think Apollos is the best, you know. And then other people, the really super spiritual ones, are like, well, I'm following Jesus, okay? And Paul tries to address this in the church. And really, the, the book that Timothy Keller has written, it's just a short book, is really looking into what Paul's trying to teach the church here. And he says that when Paul is talking about this pride that's in people, he's saying that the word he uses, and I'll put this up on the screen, uh, for pride literally means to be overinflated, swollen, distended beyond its proper size, and it's related to the word for bellows. It's very evocative. That's the word that he's using. That's what he's talking about for pride here. And then he goes on to describe the condition of the human ego, uh, saying that uh, the image uh, suggests four things about the natural condition of the human ego, that it is empty, that it is painful, that it is busy, and that it is fragile. And I'm not going to go into all that today, but if you want to read that book, then you'll find it in there. I have found it very enlightening as I've reflected on that. But really, what we're talking about here is I, I thought, I need to share this in the church. How do, how do I sum this up? How do I talk about pride in our own human ego, that which rises up within us and causes us to be disunited within ourselves and disunited with other people. And I thought, I'm going to read the Treasure Kids cupboard, and I'm going to get some balloons from the Treasure Kids cupboard, because it talks about being overinflated here, okay? This is my first balloon. <sighs> There's not as much air in there as there used to be. But I'm working on my exercise. And the first one that I've got here is really, can you see it? Pride. Being overinflated. Having an overinflated opinion of ourselves. That's not a healthy thing. John, you can hold on to that one. <laughs> you don't need to hold on to it. Pride. Puffed up. Filled up. Hey, they carry on in the church, you. Look at this. <laughs> I know I threw it first off I talk about. Okay, here's the second one. <coughs> right, this one's not quite so big. I'll not throw it, John. <laughs> Can you see what it says? Low self-esteem. 
Where's that balloon? I need it back again. No, I'm not kidding. The big balloon overinflated. The wee balloon, I know some people think I'm a balloon, but that's another story. Underinflated. Low self-esteem. And really, if you read this book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, really what Paul is saying is that I'm not really interested in what other people think about me. I'm not even interested in what I think about myself. He says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me right. He says, the only thing I'm interested in is God's opinion of who I am. Overinflated, underinflated, same problem. Being proud or having low self-esteem, same problem, just opposite ends of the scale. What God is looking for in His people is something totally different from that altogether. Balloon number three. <laughs> to be full of God. To be full of God. Not full of hot air. Okay? Well, that's kind of full of hot air now. But you know what I mean. To be full of God. Not full of ourselves, whether it's our, our high opinion of ourselves or our low opinion of ourselves. God has created each of us unique and individual and he wants us to be filled with him, with his spirit, with who he is. Not filled up with hot air. And uh, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. As you get to the end of this series of readings, if you want to read that, he says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? Wow. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? I found that very challenging when I read that. It's actually quite humbling when you read Paul's words and when you realize that actually everything you have is a gift from God. And we tend to look at the people who are very gifted and then compare them to those who are less gifted. The people who are rich versus the people who are poor. The people who are academic versus the people who are not academic, vocational type people. The people who are bosses and the people who are bossed about. Okay, which side do you prefer being on? I don't actually like being the boss and I don't like being bossed about. I like to just be in the middle and get on with my job. What do you have that you did not receive already? It takes away all scope for boasting. The only person that we can really boast in is Jesus Christ himself, who has come and who has died for us and who has given us everything. I'm running out of time already and I'm only on my second point. The second point is about being double-minded. What does that mean? We'll consider it in just a little second. It's an, uh, another area uh, that causes division within us. Uh, and James in his book, in uh, James chapter 1, uses this phrase, double-mindedness. Uh, and the phrase, uh, double-minded, is from the Greek word, dipsychos, okay, psychos, uh, literally meaning uh, two-spirited. And it's a composite of uh, two words, uh, this meaning twice, and psyche meaning spirit 
or breath of life, soul, mind, heart, all of these types of things, depending on the context that we find the word in. But in essence, it's about wavering between two opinions. It's about wavering between two opinions, being double-minded. Now, let me read James chapter 1, verses 2 through to 8 from the message because I think it it, it expresses things in a different way that that I found really challenging as I read this. And it says this, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. Who likes to be under pressure? Do, 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 do right? None of us like to be under pressure. None of us like it when the heat is on. Because when the heat's on, that's when who we really are comes to the surface. So, don't try to get out of anything prematurely. So, when you're going through the trials, what James is saying here is, don't just ask God to beam me up, Scotty, okay? Right, take me right now. I've had enough of this. Don't try to get out of the trials prematurely, but let it do its work so that you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. It's how we grow. We grow through the trials and the struggles. If you don't know what you're doing, whoever feels like that? (laughs) I feel like that often. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. He loves to help. You'll get his help and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. Uh, But listen to this. Ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. People who worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. Don't think you're going to get anything from the master that way. Adrift at sea, keeping all your options open. Now, I found that really challenging when, when it's phrased that way. It's really, really challenging. And what it's saying is that when we're under pressure, who we really are is what comes out. And sometimes when we ask God, we don't ask God believing that He's going to give us the answer to our prayers. And I love this bit at the end about we can be like people who are adrift at sea, keeping all your options open. I don't particularly ever want to be adrift at sea. I've seen... I've seen the films about this and the survivors of people who've uh, been at sea for months and survived. Just incredible. I, I don't ever want to be in that position. But sometimes we can feel like that. We, we, we kind of feel like we're adrift. We're, we're, we're kind of out at sea and, and everything's kind of all over the place. But there's this thing about keeping your options open. I had a headache this morning. I had two options. Right? I might have been in another place where I didn't have two options, but my two options were this morning, pray about it or take some anodin. Okay? I was keeping my options open. Okay? <laughs> Sometimes you pray and take the anodin. <laughs> but, but really, I didn't even contemplate praying about it this morning because I get headaches quite regularly. My other option was available to me. Text Mary, I'm coming back up the road to pick you up at half past nine. Can you maybe get something from me to eat so I can take some anodin and sort out this headache, which is away now? Keeping your options open. And here's the thing, we have so many options. 
This word was written to people who maybe didn't have the options that we have. And we have the opportunity to come to a God who's able to meet every need. And I wonder sometimes if we are like that double-minded person who says, oh, maybe I'll go to God and pray about this, maybe I'll not bother. Maybe I'll just go to plan B, which is to maybe speak to somebody else or to get other forms of help. Do you know, sometimes it only takes a slight change in our circumstances, and that can happen quickly, to see where our faith really stands, to see what we're really made of. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. Faith life is forced into the open when we're under pressure. And it's when we're under pressure that we find out what our hearts are truly like. And we're encouraged to ask boldly, believingly, without a second thought. I wonder if we do that. The NIV puts it this way, talks about a double-minded man. There's a lack of unity within somebody who's double-minded. And if we're double-minded, that lack of unity within ourselves will eventually affect our families, will affect our friends, our community, our neighbors, will affect the church that we go to, will affect ultimately the wider church. A drift at sea keeping all of our options open. As I was thinking about this, I came across this quote because I was looking for something else for today. And I came across this by Corrie Ten Boom. She said, you, ne- you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Wow. That's powerful, isn't it? You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Have you ever been in that position where He is all you have? You don't have a plan B. You're not able to keep your options open because you don't have a plan B. He is all you need. You know, we sometimes come into church and we can sometimes, and I don't mean this disrespectfully in any way whatsoever, but we can be quite casual in our worship and we can sing the words with hands raised up, you know, you're all I need. Jesus, you're all I need. But it's only when we're in the straits, it's only when we're in that place, as Steve talked about this morning as he sang prophetically, where we're facing the mountain, that we actually realize that Jesus is all we need. We can be tempted off into so many different areas because we have options. And uh, yeah, it all starts in here at the heart. The heart is so important. The key to all of this is in the human heart. And I'm sure you know what I mean by that. I'm not talking about this thing that beats blood around the body. I'm talking about the very essence of a being. That's what the Bible uses this word to describe, the very core of who we are, the essence of our being. And who we are at our heart affects our words, it affects our actions. And if we're divided in here, what comes out, either in what we say or what we do, brings about division for ourselves and for others. What does the Bible have to say about the human heart? This is what it says in Jeremiah 17, 9 through to 10. The human heart is most deceitful, is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. My grass is better than your grass. His grass is better than my grass. 
God knows exactly what's going on in our hearts. We might deceive ourselves, but He's never deceived. He knows exactly what's going on with all of us all the time. Our hearts deceive us, okay? Now, you might think, nah, don't think so. I'm always in control. I always know what's happening. I'm in control, right? All it takes is the moment for the squeeze to come on, and then you'll find out what's really in your heart. I've got two things here. One's chili puree, and the other one is tomato puree, right? When the squeeze is on, what's going to come out? With this one, what's going to come out? Spicy chili puree, right? (laughs) And for some of us, when the squeeze is on, this is what comes out, the hot stuff, okay? And we go, whoa, I didn't realize that was there. And for some of us, when the squeeze is on, what comes out is double concentrated tomato puree. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) What comes out of us is something that's far nicer and far sweeter. I wouldn't want to eat it in this condition, mind you. I want it mixed in with my, my food. But when the squeeze is on, what's inside comes out. The condition of our heart is so crucial. And David, David was a man after God's own heart, it says. And when, he was, uh, when Samuel was tasked to go and look for uh, a new king, he went to the, the house of uh, uh, Jesse. Sorry, brain fog. And all the brothers were brought before Samuel. And, uh, you know, some of them were big kind of strapping guys. I just have to kid on here, okay? Use your imagination. Okay, some of them were big strapping guys. And uh, God said to Samuel, no, it's not him. And Samuel would say, is there another one? And the next big strapping guy would come in, okay? Maybe we need some strapping guys to... (laughs) Uh, Certainly not me. Sorry? <laughs> You'll be doing the sermon next week if they're wearing your cheek, okay? But God says, I'm not interested in how he looks. I'm interested in what's in his heart. And here's the thing. God was able to see the content of each of their hearts, which is why he chose David. We all know about David's mistakes and faults, but underneath all of that, he had a heart for God. For Samuel, 16 and 7 says this, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When we're in the shop and we're shopping for some tomato puree, what do we do? We look at the packaging, don't we? We all do it. Okay, Mary. (laughs) Exception. Mary's into the buy one, get one free, okay? The price, okay? But generally, generally, we look at the package and we think, I recognize that brand. I'm going to go for that. But in actual fact, Tesco's own, oops, maybe I shouldn't be advertising, or Asda's own, or Morrison's own, or whoever's own, okay? (laughs) Aldi's own, Lidl's own. I like Lidl's, okay? Let's just get that out there. We look at the packaging and we're influenced by what's on the outside. But really what's important is that when we take that home and we apply that product to our cooking, does it do what it says on the tube? Okay? 
not the tin, the tube. Does it do what it says? And that's really what we're talking about here. Do we as Christians have a heart for God? What's inside of us coming out? And just to sum up really, really quickly, there are four things, and my time is really gone, but four things I want to just mention briefly that I think are important in order to be united within ourselves, to be a whole person, to be a well-rounded person, as, as people put it. And the first thing is that we learn to die to self, to die to our old nature, to die to our old desires, to die to all that stuff, and to put on the new nature. Paul says this in Galatians 20, uh, 2, sorry, 2 chapter 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. There can be no resurrection without death. We need to die to our old nature, to our old self, in order to experience the resurrection power, which is point number two. His incomparably great power for us who believe, Ephesians 1. That power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. That same power is the power that works in the Christian keeping our options open. Maybe we should be challenged by that to lean on this incredible power more and to lean on our plan B a lot less. Thirdly, to be transformed. And you'll know this passage well. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We can come to church and sing all the songs, but unless we're doing this, then it's meaningless. A spiritual act of worship is to die to self and to put on the new nature. Verse 2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then lastly, to get a sense of perspective. And sometimes we need to get recalibrated, reminding ourselves of where we fit in the grand scheme of things. Listen to the words of the psalmist in the message translation of Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 to 4. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry, moon and stars mounted in their settings. There's nothing more majestic than being in a really dark place and looking up at the sky, and you go, wow. I look at your macro skies. Have you ever done that? You look up at the sky at night, and you go, wow. And then the psalmist says this, then I look at my micro self and wonder, why do you bother with us? Why do you take a second look? And yet God does. And all that He's created, and He said that it was good, He created a human being, two of them, and He saw that it was good. His plan to populate the earth, His plan for fellowship and relationship. Little micro-selves in the vastness of the universe. And sometimes we need to gain a sense of perspective really we're not that important, right? But really, we're important enough for Jesus to die for us, and that's incredible. I want to leave you with a poem 
Uh, maybe the musicians could uh, begin uh, coming back up to the platform. And I'm going to read a poem by uh, Corey Ten Boom. Uh, and it says, life is but a weaving. And this is what it says, my life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. Who all knows that the front of the tapestry looks very different from the back of the tapestry? Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reasons why. Dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Powerful words. And if you've read Corrie Ten Boom's story, all the more powerful. Let's remember, I think today, if we take anything away, that we get a sense of perspective about ourselves. That God has created as unique, not to be compared to other people, but to find our way of serving Him in this world. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father, we thank You for who You have created us to be. And Father, we pray that You'd help us to find a place of being at unity within ourselves. Father, being at peace within ourselves. Father, we think of the words of the psalmist when he says, search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any impure way within me. And Father, that whole sentiment is that you have this uh, eye that is able to pierce through the very thickest of our defenses. And Father, you see exactly who we are. And Father, may we today invite you to examine our hearts so that you can point out things that are within us that need to just be adjusted, to be recalibrated. Father, maybe some things that need to be ejected altogether. But Father, we pray that you would come and that you would fill us with your Spirit. Father, that we might be uh, those people who you've called us and created us to be. Father, created in your very image to give glory to you, to have fellowship with you, to have fellowship with one another. And Father, we realize that unity at this level affects others around us. It affects our family, it affects our friends and neighbors, it affects those we come to church with, it affects our church community across towns and areas and across nations. And Father, we pray, help us to get this bit right, even as you go into this week. Holy Spirit, we pray that you come and that you would search our hearts and that you would just illuminate things within us that we need to just get sorted out before you and perhaps before other people as well. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.